Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell them what's happening in today's episode? Brooke, today we're going to be talking about the Middle Passage, slave trade, moving people from Africa to the Americas. Okay. We're here. Yeah. Settle in. Get your coffee. It's going to be rough. All right. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, Brooke, today we're going to be talking about the Middle Passage, and this is a topic that is obviously kind of intersects U.S. history curriculum, world history curriculum. It's part of, you know, teachers in school talk about triangle trade. Do you remember learning about that? I actually do. Yeah. So mercantilism is this idea that like the colonies are responsible for feeding the mother country. And so, you know, you extract the things from those colonies and send them back. And the mother country is responsible for providing, you know, manufactured goods and whatever. Yeah. And the effect of this is that, and especially in the American colonies where you have all this land that the Europeans perceive as untouched, even though there are hundreds of thousands of indigenous people living there. Uh. They need to bring in people, manual labor, to um, work that land, turn it into farmland for cash crops. And in, you know, in U.S. history, we spent a lot of time talking about, like, tobacco and cotton and whatever. I was going to say, I was like, tobacco, cotton. (laughs) Crushing it. Corn. Uh, Corn. Well, yeah. And so in my world history class, I spent a lot of time sort of de-Americanizing, like de-US centralizing (laughs) that and and focusing more on things like sugarcane, which is coming out of the Caribbean and South America and And like coffee. Yeah, right. And and those are actually even scarier plantations to be sent to because it's hotter, more dangerous, more diseases. Um, and the work is just brutal. And in the Spanish colonies, the treatment of these enslaved people is pretty horrible. Um, and, you know, like, I don't want to get into like, what's more horrible, but it's like oh God, pretty let's not, bad let's not um, do that. in the Spanish colonies. It's so, all horrible. You're enslaving humans. Let's right. just. Yeah. I want to, today we're going to talk about this topic and I'm going to draw um, a lot from, you know, the work, the kind of normal books that people use um, to talk about this, like textbooks and things like that. Um, But I'm also going to draw from two more recent publications. One's called Sexuality and Slavery, Reclaiming the Intimate Histories of the Americas. This was published in 2018. And another one is one that I think every teacher should have a copy of in their classroom. Um, That The first one that I just mentioned is a scholarly source. The chapters are, uh, it's a collection of scholarly essays that people have written and um, it's great. But um, the other one, I think you should have a copy of it's by Rebecca Hall. She's a historian, lawyer, and fellow at Harvard Radcliffe Institute. So she's, you know, stupid. And <laughs> just kidding. She's, she's a real dumb dumb. Brilliant, obviously. And she turned and I, you can tell that someone's brilliant and they can take mm-hmm. something that's complex and scholarly 
and break it down in a really approachable way for people. Yeah. And so she has published, obviously, because she's at Harvard, um, she has published lots of scholarly works. But she, in 2000, um, in 2022, she published a book called Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts. Interesting. She published it as a graphic novel. Whoa. And it's awesome. Like, it's the epitome of intelligence because you can take something complicated and explain it really simply to people. And so I think that every secondary educator should have a copy of this book in their classroom because like I read it in an evening. Like it's not a com- like even though it's thick, it's not a complicated read because it's a graphic novel. And wow, that's super relatable and approachable. And it's also like you know, most history programs have a methods course that students take yeah. when they graduate and her book is like a methods lesson. It's like how do we know what we know about women-led slave rebellions? And she, like, walks you through her research process. So With images and pictures. With images and pictures and diagrams and commentary. And it's awesome. It's actually really interesting, too, to approach a topic that way and put images that are cartoon-esque yeah. to that. Because it's a really heavy topic. Yeah. And not that she's bringing levity, per se, because I haven't no. seen the book. But at least pulling images that maybe there aren't a lot available for context. So you're taking something that would be very text heavy initially, and you're putting images to it that are really going to bring your students forward, which is ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's called Wake. It's called Wake. Yep. And the subtitle is, you know, the hidden history of women led slave revolts. And is it U.S. slave revolts? So, no, she's, um, she focuses on, you know, today we're going to talk about the Middle Passage. So, she has some stuff about women in the Middle Passage, which okay. is, you know, the crossing the Atlantic, coming from Africa to the Americas, known as the Middle Passage. Um, but she also has stuff on U.S. revolts. So, there's one in New York and I'm making up a date, 1712, something like that, that happens. Um, Here come the trolls. Yeah, I know. They're going to be like, this woman knows nothing. She's making up dates. But anyway, it's something It's something like that. Um, New York historians are like, please, we all know the date. Anyway. <laughs> there are a lot, actually. It's kind of annoying. And they're like, excuse me. Excuse me. Anyway. Get to my computer. Um, I'm making very clear Fever that type. that's a made-up date. Um, but it's something like that. And... Um, Anyway, so so she does touch on U.S. history, too. So it, you could – I think it would be a great thing to include in a U.S. history text. But, like, I also teach modern world history, and I think it would be a great text cool. to have, and you could use it there. Um, Sounds fascinating. It's really, really good. So we're going to draw on those two sources, and I just highly recommend them to everybody. So um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is maybe a more, like, broader scholarship piece, just understanding how colonialism impacted gender dynamics. And essentially, it's not to say that like, you know, Africa is not a monolith. It's not like one thing. It's not Africa. It was all these various kingdoms. And the ones that interacted in the early years of exploration were the ones on the West Coast of Africa. And they were interacting primarily with Portuguese and Spanish explorers, but mostly Portuguese because of a 
rule that was passed by the Pope that basically gave the Spanish the Americas and the Portuguese Africa. And like this was, they divided the Atlantic Ocean. And this changed when they realized how big the Americas were. Um, and the Pope was like, okay, just kidding. We'll give the Portuguese Brazil, you know? So like <laughs> they, they, they fudged the line a little bit later. Um, but so you have all these Portuguese and then later Dutch and English explorers, you know, coming down West coast of Africa. And it's not to say that Africans hadn't been interacting for centuries, millennia with people um, through, you know, what was called the sand roads, not the silk roads, the sand roads coming across the Sahara. And then, you know, Islamic traders definitely down um, Eastern Africa and North Africa. But this but audience cannot see you right now of like you making a lot of hand motions that to like, describe like, there's a map in front of us. <laughs> so if you could envision a map in front of you, Kelsey's waving her arms across Africa, Africa. <laughs> Africa. Africa. <laughs> I, I'm like, yes, I'm sitting here understanding. <laughs> Just had to tell the listener. But there are parts, especially away from these coastal regions um, and away from East Africa where, um, and I mean, you can think about like Cleopatra, you know, that's an African figure that a lot of people recognize mm -hmm. in history and she's a queen who read, led outright. Um, there's Kandaki who was um, from just south of where Cleopatra lived. And she also defended her empire against the Romans successfully, unlike Cleopatra. Mm. And um, so there's, you know, those two women in ancient history are good examples of powerful African queens. And then all over African history are these oral histories and stories of really powerful queens. And it's not just like, oh, anecdotally, there were African queens. It's enough that it's like, oh, there are lots of African queens. Oh, yeah. This is very much a thing. This is a thing. And so, the you know, Africa is um, has lots of traditions uh, in various kingdoms of matrilineal uh, rule where, you know, inheritance and different things are passed down through maternal lines. There's this long history of African queens. And then you see the impact of colonialism, where you take this very patriarchal Europe, you have predominantly, if not entirely, male explorers coming down the African coast. Mm -hmm. You know, we see this in American history as... Englishmen are interacting with indigenous people and they don't, they want to talk to the man in charge. And they, you know, this tribe, like, you know, in when the Dutch are interacting with the indigenous people in Manhattan, they say, we want to talk to the man in charge. And they send like three girls to sign a treaty with <laughs> the Dutch. And the Dutch are like, why? And they're like, um, because women are the backbone of our society. And these young women are going to be the future generation that leads us. So they should decide if they want to sign this treaty with you. Doesn't that just logically make sense? And the Dutch are like, cannot compute. We only work with men, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, the same is happening in parts of Africa where these Portuguese explorers are, are like, we need to talk to the man in charge. Yeah, who's and, the big guy? Yeah. And it's not to say that, like, you know, I think people think that in a patriarchy, you've got men in charge and in a 
matriarchy it's just the opposite no and it's that's not what it is like what's your understanding of matriarchy matriarchy to me is many women that are creating a community and fostering an environment that is more equitable versus one singular female in charge yeah is that right yeah it's more it's like it's a it's a communal I, yeah, so leadership. like there's someone that helps with childbirth, there's someone that helps with food and sustenance, there's another, you know, like, yeah. and they're all in a, it's more of like a committee. Yeah. <laughs> and, and. Which is kind of funny of how a lot of women um, socialize and, and, and convene lead. and lead. Yeah. It's communal. Sharing. Sharing. Yeah. <laughs> what is interesting in some of the, and the the first book that I mentioned, Sex and, um, Sexuality and Slavery, one of the things they talk a lot about is like these early interactions with between Portuguese explorers and or English explorers or French explorers and African people and how it's hard, like it's hard to even trace back the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. But what we know is that eventually these coastal areas become really patriarchal if they weren't already like that. And, and it's the effect of, these trading relationships. It's the way that in these matriarchal societies, roles were distinguished where like women may be in charge, but men are the ones that are still soldiers. They're still, um, and that's not always true. Like the Dahomey Amazon are a really good example of that. So, but it, but colonialism and these interactions with patriarchal Europe are shifting gender dynamics in Africa and in the Americas. Because those people are coming in and saying, I need to talk to a guy. Yeah. And that's not being true. And so they're missing out on opportunity because they don't have that established role. Correct. And so they might be, you know, yeah. And so over time, this changes societies in within Africa and it's also really interesting because are you familiar with the term like cognitive dissonance? This is a psych concept. No, say more. So cognitive I mean, dissonance is where you basically are you're playing like cognitive tricks on yourself to justify your own behaviors. Oh, okay. I got you. Um so we see that in the writings of these male explorers who are interacting with African women who are so distinctly different than European women. And initially in some of, and this isn't always true. Like you could take a variety of different sources and you could see the way their inner, you know, the amount of time that they're hanging out with African people changes what they're saying about these African people. And I would say in general, there's a degree of admiration, if not like, um, kind of like making different, these different women, maybe like an erotic thing, you know, like, um, so that's kind of gross for sure. Yeah. Like sexualizing them, sexualizing them, but because there's a bit of admiration behind it. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about it is they start writing about how, um, these African women are really strong and they're really powerful. And it's so in contrast to European women who are sickly and weak and like, you know, like die in childbirth so frequently, whereas these African women are like healthier and like give birth, you know, more mm. successfully and seem to do it without pain, which there's, hmm, you know, that's oppressed women 
and free water. Yeah. No, it it's I bet it's really interesting to look at their and and how they value them as peers versus um subordinates. Yeah. Like one guy in sixteen oh two, um he was a he's a French explorer, um Pieter de Marais, um announced in sixteen oh two, the women here are of a cruder nature and stronger posture than females in our land in Europe. Um, and this was like a weird sentence and the, the authors, um, wrote about how this is like a backhanded compliment, um, <laughs> where they're basically like saying that they are strong and more capable, but then it's also, you can see these like early origins of really racist beliefs and concepts that because these women are cruder and stronger, they are therefore capable of more physical labor a.k.a. slavery. Mm. They are capable of enduring pain. Um, you know, like, oh, they don't feel pain the same way that white women do. God, that perpetuates for centuries. Centuries, yeah. So, um, so anyway, this is just, I think th- these early sources can give us a sense of these, the myths. way, these <laughs> myths and the way that you have, and most of the sources from this period that they use in this book, and I think largely because these are the sources that are available for us to understand African women, they're European, white European male sources describing right. these women. So the lens. Yeah, you have to like put this lens of, you know, distance and and understanding that there's no way these men really understood what these women are going through. One of the other things that we know is that in these early years, like 1400, you know, 1450s forward, um, Portuguese, French, Dutch, English explorers that are interacting with these African women are also interacting with them because these women, in a lot of cases, were already, there was a robust sexual slavery in the West Coast of Africa. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these women were enslaved. Now, what that looked like is really different than the slavery we envision in U.S. history, um, which has no expiration date. It's a lifelong, you know, um, status. And, you know, the, your owner had rights to kill you, to beat you, to, you know, all these other things. So it definitely had, had different roles and functions, but a lot of these women were wrapped up in sexual slavery and they were often prostituted out to European travelers as like, you know, like, welcome to our land. We're so excited to work with you. Also, like, there's this whorehouse down the street, like, you know, enjoy yourself while you're here. Um, some of these Europeans, like, took African wives. And it's kind of interesting because they didn't see them as, like, wives per se, um, because often they had wives back home, but they, like, had these sex- these women that were, like, their sexual partners while they were away from Europe and whatever, we know that slavery is there and we know that these sexual dynamics are in place even before, you know, these people are, are captured, you know, sold, put on ships and taken to the Americas. Right. One of the interesting things is that for enslaved people, these early days of, of being captured and, and, you know, this is really tricky because you've got, You've got Europeans literally seizing people, taking them, putting them on ships. Terrifying. You also have, you know, longstanding 
rivalries between African peoples and kingdoms, and they're conquering each other and selling each other into perpetual slavery um, in order often to position. And I don't want to make it sound like, well, Africans are, are betraying each other and doing this. It's like, no, they're put in a position because of colonialism and European power where it's sort of like, you are these other guys. So what's yeah, your choice? You know? Exactly. So that's awful. But, that you know they're often held in a coastal town and then um when the ship arrives they're put on the ship and sent off they you know we have diagrams i think these diagrams are really persuasive sources to show students these are something that i can vividly remember learning in class and they were terrifying what grade are we introducing this now I mean, I think it should be introduced early. Like It was like sixth grade from what I, like, if my brain is accurate. Yeah, I mean, U.S. history in New Hampshire is supposed to be taught by eighth grade. Like, you should have had a U.S. history course. Um, that varies state to state, and it definitely varies internationally. So, if we have people in Europe listening, like, or Australia, like, the... It might be a little bit different, but I think most people by the end of middle school, by, by yeah, 14. I mean, we covered like World War II in seventh grade and we covered yeah um, Vietnam by eighth grade. So I think we did colonialism and yeah. uh, slave trade and all that in fifth and sixth. How vivid you make this, you know, could vary. I think one, if, if you're teaching younger students, just showing them these diagrams and showing them how packed in and like... Anybody who's been on an international flight knows it's really freaking uncomfortable to like be packed in on a plane. Cruise ships. Right. Now imagine like take that space that you have on the plane and the luxury to like get up and move and then amplify that by a million knowing that there's no opportunity to get up and move. You're chained to the floor. There's no food. There's There's no no water. Yeah. Well, there's food and water, but it's garbage and minimal and And there's disease. disease and you're, you're like... Sitting in your own feces. Sitting in your own feces. Women who are pregnant are giving birth in these conditions. Oh my like, gosh. It's, and, and, the ba- and the baby's not surviving. To what is clear. always stark to me yeah. is the number that get on and the number that get off. Yeah. And how drastically different those numbers are. Yeah. So how many people are dying on through this voyage and then through the sea and are, are taken off the ships? It's like... Yeah. I just... It's... And I guess in this time period, travel by sea is dangerous no matter what. Like people, it is likely that people will die at sea in good condition. Yeah. Right. But in this condition, it's astronomical. Right. I mean, the, this document, um, the one that I think a lot of people show in their class, this was, um, this was the stowage of the slave ship, um, it's a, it was a regulated slave act of 1788, and this was supposed to be the improved conditions. And so you can assume that prior to 1788, they were terrible. They were even worse than this because they weren't. And they even figured out like, well, if we ship people like this, we're not going to. They're not going to survive as well. So yeah, let's so fix like, this a little. We need bit. a little bit better return on investment here. You Ew. know, like, yeah. Ugh. So it's that was sarcasm to be clear. Okay, thank you. Um, so, and this, this is a British source because it's all in English, but, um, and you know, I you can, can remember, ins- I don't know if you did this field trip, you grew up in New England too, but the, um, in Mystic, Connecticut, mm-hmm. close to where I grew up, there's, um, all the old ships, you go to yeah. see the tall ships. Yeah. And there is one that they have in the harbor that was part of the slave trade and they do have the low, it's called like the bottom of the boat, like the, not the hull, yeah. I forgot what it's called, but there's where the 
seamen, yeah. the workers, would live. And then there's the storage below, and that's where they held slaves. Yeah. And you walk down there as a student. It is, it is horrifying. It yeah. is just like, wait, people fit down here, and they stayed down here for weeks and weeks and yeah. weeks. Like, I'm a sailor, and like I've spent a lot of time on boats. I get so sick sometimes on there like i can't imagine like one of the cures for seasickness is, is seeing looking land. at the yeah. looking at the horizon and just having like a point to like center yourself i can't imagine being down below deck unable to like see out vomit out breathe fresh air you know like all the things that would help you just deal with normal seasickness let alone the horrors of being packed in often next to people that you don't necessarily know um, unable Who've to never been on e- ships before either. Like this, it's just unable to support each other. Oh, so, oh, anyway, bringing it to positive things. Whoa! Not, how one, do you do that? <laughs> not positive, I guess, but um, more like resilient, optimistic things. One of the things that's really interesting is slave rebellions on these ships are more likely to happen while they were still in sight of land because it was like, oh, we can see, we can get home. Yeah, we can get home. And often people on the coast would come out and like help. Like they would like get in little like dinghies or whatever and like try to overthrow the ship before they could get away. That's kind of interesting. It's like for the for the slavers, the most dangerous part is like while you're still near Africa. But then the other thing is just the sheer number of slave rebellions that occurred during the Middle Passage, I think is overwhelming because people think like, oh, these poor victims who were put on the ship, they couldn't do anything and they, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, they were resisting actively from jump, you know, from go. Um, and I think that's a really important piece of history because it's counter to the narr- the Christian narrative that we are, that Europeans are doing this thing to support, to like bring these heathens to the light, you know, and like we're, we're giving them Christianity by converting them. We're giving them um, training in jobs and whatever that will mm-hmm. better them and make them less backward or whatever. And all of that is obviously nonsense. It's cognitive dissonance, right? Trying to justify yeah, this, saying this is ill okay. treatment and dehumanizing oh. of these people. So on the theme of dehumanizing, coming back to negative things, is this entire process was designed to strip these people of their humanity by packing them in like animals down below deck. The other thing that's really interesting, though, is we have this history, these sources that show us that European men do sexualize these women that they see as exotic. They also now are in positions of power where consent is non-existent. So one of the interesting things is we know from quantitative studies that the more women that were on board these ships, and this comes from Rebecca Hall's graphic novel that I talked about before, but also like lots of scholarship that she's published, the more women that were on board these books, uh, books, these ships, the more likely a rebellion was to happen. And she talks about how historians who stumbled upon this data, this quantitative analysis of slave ships, um, were mostly male who were doing this initial research. And they sort of dismissed that as a weird fluke of history. And she's coming back to this evidence and saying, no, that's not a weird fluke of history. This is like obvious. 
right? And one of the reasons is because of the sexual exploitation of these women, especially young, pretty women Mm. were not down below. They were actually up above deck being sexually exploited by these European men. And one of the plus sides of that is they were more free. They weren't bound and held and they were in proximity to weapons. And so these women who like every other slave getting on these ships were going to resist even if there was, even if resistance was futile, right? They've heard enough stories. Um, and one of the, you know, the, even if you are successful in liberating the men from below decks, like you're still probably going to die, right? Like you might, you know, the ship might go down that, you know, like there's a high likelihood of death, but people resisted anyway. And that's really interesting and important. So these women, had better access to weapons, they would start the rebellion, they would arm their, you know, the people down below decks. And so when women were on board these ships, the more women on board the ships, the more likely a rebellion was to happen. Now, I think this is a great example of like, women getting erased in history, right? And and their sexual exploitation being erased in history. I don't necessarily think that's something to bring up with middle schoolers, but definitely high school. Right. Definitely. That should be talked about. I think and this gets back to something we've talked about a lot that like when sex and sexuality are involved in the history that often leads to women's erasure. But like because teachers are too scared to talk about those topics in class. Well, it's tough. Those are tough. I mean, I'm telling you how vividly I remember seeing the images of the boats. It sticks with you at a young age when you have not been exposed to those things. Yeah. It should. Yeah. It should stick with you. It should stick with you. These are the points of teaching tough history. Right. Right. Learn. Learn from it. Don't repeat it. And be sensitive to it. So how does she, she's not just taking this quantitative evidence and like hoping for the best here. Like this isn't just a theory. In 1789, the Privy Council um, has this document where they say the slave, if a man is put in iron on the main deck, if a boy he's put on the main deck loose, if a woman or girl, they are placed without irons on the quarter deck. This was policy on board the ships. So certainly these women, you know, part of that is sexism at inaction and, and not working in favor actually of them. It's actually idi- like sexism yeah. proving them to be idiots. Like, oh yeah, just leave the women without irons on the deck. That sounds like a good plan, you know, like, and what, why are they doing that? They're assuming that these women, if they did anything, they could put them down really quickly. Um, you know, they are assuming women are too docile and weak and whatever to do that, even though we know they know that they're not because they write about their strength. So, um, but she says, you know, we know from other source material that rape and sexual violence are present on these ships. Yep. And so, but women are, are active in these rebellions. And I think that's really empowering. I also think that this speaks to the, you know, what I said before, how this entire experience of the middle passage is designed to dehumanize. I also think it's designed to emasculate. And I think that's a piece that we should talk about too. I think about, I, you know, I think historic imagination is a really good thing to bring into your classes. 
And I try to imagine being one of these African males shackled below deck, listening to what's happening up above oh, deck. And if it, like your wife or sister or daughter is up there. Or just a woman who looks like you. Do you know oh. what I'm saying? Like, and how that is intentionally designed to make these men feel helpless to help their women. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a really important piece of this. And, and how that also for men would be a motivator to rebel too. So I don't think this is entirely just about women being in positions to rebel, right? Like by being unshackled above deck. Mm-hmm. I also think this is about motivation and these women are more motivated perhaps than men to rebel because of what's actively happening, the violence that's actively happening to them. But I also think it's motivating for African men to do something to stop the violence against their women. I think the combination of those things are why when more women are on these ships, rebellion is more likely. The sheer number of rebellions that happen, I think, is just really important to appreciate. And like I said, most of these are unlikely to succeed. Um, millions, but the number of rebellions put um, cost slavers millions of dollars in annual revenue, um, which is like, what? Like, wouldn't they want to puzzle through why these rebellions are happening and like figure that out? Um, and the nice thing is that it prevents so many people from going into perpetual slavery in the Americas. And then, you know, the likelihood of survive, like it would be rare if you made it to one of those sugar colonies. It would be rare if you made it past the age 30 because of the conditions in which you were working. What was the average age, let's say, if you were not a slave? Um, or, sorry, 40s or 50s. Enslaved person. Yeah. Um, 40s or 50s would probably be that in that time period. Um, there's a cool account in sexuality and slavery of this older woman who worked in the sugar colonies who survived into her 30s, maybe even 40s. But she and she had children who survived uh, infancy, but they both um, didn't she outlived both of her children, which is really hard, but, but her children's lives were more typical than hers were, which made her kind of an interesting anomaly where she became this like old woman on the plantation. And, you know, and like, that's horrible. The, the conditions in which these people lived in the, the Americas were horrible. Uh. To me, this is such important. It's important to gender the story of the middle passage, because when you, when you bring gender in, it, it illuminates a piece of this story and it explains these rebellions, I think, so much better, which is why Hall's work and um, Barry, who, who edited the sexuality and slavery text, like, like this is so important. And it, to me, it tells a much more whole story of this awful experience that these enslaved people endured while crossing the Atlantic. Yeah. And it also, it breaks assumptions. I think a lot of times like students can just lean into all oh, mostly men were captured and brought over and that's not true. Yeah. And so I think it's also highlighting um, those assumptions and those falsities and making sure that you're still telling a really accurate um, narrative. And that cognitive dissonance in play, like 
they basically, while they had these beliefs about women that they, you know, were maybe weaker or whatever, that didn't apply to African women. Like African women were worked in the fields and on, you know, sugar, developing sugarcane just the same as their male counterparts. And they were given like barely a minute after they gave birth, you know, to like go back. And I think that just speaks to the way that their gendered assumptions about women varied by race. And those things impacted us, like you said, for centuries, those racist ideas about the pain that black women were able to endure persisted. And those things impact black women right now when they go to doctors, right? Because those ideas are still there and their complaints are less validated by often white male doctors in those positions. And, um, and it's, and I think these things, you know, these come back to, you can trace these, these ideas back to some of the earliest texts that we, European texts that we have about African women. Kelsey, thank you. This was heavy. Yes. I'm going to walk into my day a little heavier, <laughs> but also really informed. And I'm excited about these texts that you're bringing forward. So I appreciate it. So well, thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Brooke. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.